Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, we're going to do something a little bit different today. I want to I want to take questions, um, and uh, I, I just think you know I'm, I'm reminded right now of a of a story of from Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, Rev Nosson, his his greatest uh, student, who wrote down the Lukutei Moraran, all of Rabbi Nachman's teachings, related this that one time he um, he. He had a need, and uh, Rebbe Nachman. It was something very simple. I don't. I don't even know what it was, but something so basic, like, like I, I'm just making this up. But it was on this level, like past the, past the water, something like this, you know. And and Rebbe Nachman asked him, "Did you did you pray for it first? In in other words, in other words, th- this idea that Rebbe Nachman really brought into the world that even if your shoelaces are broken." that you should daven for a new pair of shoelaces, you should ask God for a new pair of shoelaces, and that there's nothing too small to ask God for. And if you feel as though this is too small of a request, you ready for this? A very strong answer back. That's arrogance. That you're so arrogant that you feel as though that's something that you don't have to ask for? Why? Because that means that there's a certain level of things that you just have coming to you. But really? So when you see this sort of like cuts very deeply in terms of who we are and what our relationship with God is and who God is and everything like this, that basically there is no, okay, I've got my needs, which I take care of. And then there are the other needs, which are a little more, you know, like abstract, which I have to rely on a power beyond myself. There's no, that, that sort of way of thinking is, is, is flawed or just false. It's, it's false. Basically, just like, we, we need God for absolutely everything. And so then, therefore, to condition ourselves to, to ask for even the smallest things, that's really when you create a bedrock relationship between you and Hashem. That, that's, it's really the, 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 the smaller things, actually, maybe even counterintuitively, where, where a lot of that essential relationship building gets, gets started because you recognize that I can't take a breath without God. So, so with that in mind, making it very personal, I, I just want to just take questions because, you know, a lot of times when you give these talks, it's a, it's, a, it's a little like, you know, you're blindfolded and, you know, you don't even know where the target is. And you're just kind of like, you're just kind of like shooting arrows. And, but the target might be behind you. But I don't know. I'm, you know, I'm just... So in other words, what's nice about taking questions is, is that... Is that you, you can actually see what, what, what matters to the person. You know what I mean? Instead of just hoping that this will, you know, be meaningful. So, so I want to take questions. And, and like I say, more, the, the more personal, the better, to the extent that you feel comfortable asking it. But, but, but I think that there's a direct correlation between something being personal and something, something being real. And so we're always trying to be real. That's, like, that's what this is all about. Okay, so with that in mind, go ahead. Next, what could we not expect, but 
why are we so focused on that? What's so wonderful about it? Yeah, so, so, so I'm going to tell you a, um, I'll give you an answer from, from the Ramachal, okay? So the Ramachal has a, a question, right? Which is, which is, he knows that, that, that basically, why is there even a world here? Okay? And because when you talk about Olam Abba, so just to translate, that means the world to come. And, and by the way, I heard Rabbi Salmon Trader said something beautiful years ago, I remember, which the world to come, normally speaking, we think of that as sort of like the next sort of like evolution of, of this world. In other words, it's, it's going to, this world is going to blossom into this next world, which is going to be this perfect sort of realm, this, this higher dimension, basically. Um, but technically speaking... The world to come, like since the world is being created and recreated every single moment, this world is being created and recreated every single moment. The world to come is the world one second from now. <laughs> so it's, it's just another way of thinking. It's just, you know, it just sort of like, where's the world to come? Well, you can think of it in the classic way, like you're asking about it, and we'll get more to that in a moment. Or you can also understand that the world to come is the world that exists one moment from now. And, and, and that's, that's actually um, worth thinking about a little bit more for a moment. Because, you know, one of the things we, we, we just had uh, a portion of the Torah, Parshas Mitzvah, which is a lot about um, speech and tsaras. Tsaras is this ailment which doesn't exist anymore. It's interesting. It's an ancient ailment that was like well documented all around. It's often translated as leprosy. Um, scholars say it, it wasn't leprosy, leprosy, but nonetheless, it, it, it had symptoms like that. So that's what we call it. But it wasn't that. And do, do you want to hear something really weird? Something very intriguing is that we don't have saras today. This this ailment because we are not on a high enough spiritual level to have it anymore. And interesting, and interesting. So, so when we were a little bit more spiritually evolved or holding a little bit on a higher level, we were more sensitive. And of course, there's a very um, strong link between body and soul. That if a person has a spiritual ailment, it can manifest itself physically. So, so, so to the extent that we're, our bodies and our souls were really tied together in a very close relationship then we would be um, vulnerable to more physical ailments that were of a spiritual nature, like tsaras. So they say, where, what was the primary cause of tsaras? And that was um, misuse of speech. Now let's just think about for a moment what speech is. Because speech is actually a wild concept. I've been thinking about speech this last week, okay? Now look, I'm going to yell something, right? Now look at my mouth very carefully as I yell this. Hello! Did you see the word hello? No. We're, words are invisible. Like, we take for granted. Like, why are words invisible? <laughs> and yet, words are probably the most impactful things in the universe. We talk, mystically speaking, we say that God spoke the world into creation. Now, of course, God doesn't have a mouth, 
But this is just a way that we can wrap our minds around this concept. So there is this amazing correlation between speech and creation, and yet, how is it that you can't see the words? So, so and especially, do you know what the word for, for, for words is in Hebrew? Davar. Davar means thing, like a physical object, and yet it's re- referring to words, spoken words, which are completely weightless and invisible. So, so there's all sorts of stuff going on in terms of speech. Um, so we have to be really careful with speech. Listen to this. I read one point that speech is the intersection between the body and the soul. Isn't that interesting? Because there's sort of like this physicalization of a thought because it's becoming spoken words, but you can't see it. So it sort of has elements of soul because you can't really see your soul. So speech is kind of like soul, but you can hear it, and we're told that it's a thing, so that's like a body. So it's kind of like a body and a soul at the same time. Now, what's really interesting about that, if you take the thought a little bit further, I think that's part of the superpower of words. Because it has a spiritual element, it's sort of disembodied, while it has a material basis to it, it can fly into your heart. Right? Because what's blocking it? It's kind of got this like X factor where it, nothing stands in its way. Just a word can go right into your heart. Because it still has a spiritual element to it. But it's physical. So then once it gets there, it's like, Dum! like all of a sudden it registers. Okay, so, so why am I talking about speech so much and what does this have to do with the world to come? the world one moment from now? Because, you know, this is a very sort of far-out spiritual idea, but I'm going to make it very real and concrete in a moment. We say this twice in the morning prayers, right, right between each other, between saying Baruch Hu, which is sort of the official beginning of the davening, and um, saying Shema. Like, that's very precious real estate, right? That's just like, just like a few, couple pages right there. That's like prime retail space right there. So this thought is repeated two separate times in this very short space, which is that God is making and remaking the world constantly. Two separate times the rabbis put that thought right in there. So we have to understand that the world is actually, see, we're so used to seeing like physical objects and thinking that everything is concrete and there are borders everywhere and barriers everywhere. And yet there's this liquidity to the world and this flexibility to the world, which is like very, very real just by virtue of the fact that it's being created and recreated every single moment, which means every single moment is a new opportunity. Okay, now that, that's abstract. Okay, now let me make it very real, okay? The example that I always like to give is imagine there's a homeless looking person sitting in like the corner of the room, whatever it is, and, you know, you're thinking whatever you're thinking about that person. And I go up to you and I say, this guy is a total genius, total genius, and a multi-multi-millionaire. Right? And then you look at him and you go, oh, yeah, he's like one of these eccentric type guys that, you know, maybe I'll say hello to him. <laughs> you know, get to know him a little bit. Maybe he'll fund my next project. Who knows? We'll hit it off. 
right? All of a sudden, one moment ago, he was someone that you're standing on the other side of the room, keeping your distance from. The next moment, it's sort of like, ah, my new best friend. (laughs) Now, can I tell you something? In that moment that I said those words to you, speech, Remember, we said God created the world through speech. At that moment that I said that, those words to you, your world became a different place. Because one moment ago, it was inhabited by a homeless person. The next moment, it was inhabited by an eccentric multimillionaire who's ready to fund your next project, perhaps. And now your behavior is different because you're living in a completely different environment. Now... I'll give you a, maybe a, a more common example. There's someone who's like walking around the room, you're in a crowd, whatever it is, a party, whatever it is, doesn't matter, and you don't have an opinion one way or another about this person. And I say, see that guy? Stay away from him. Bad guy. Now all of a sudden, it's a different world. One moment ago, that was just sort of like this par of, enter- par of entity. <laughs> you know, it wasn't milk, it wasn't meat. You didn't care one way or the other about the guy. Now it's sort of like, oh, I'm taking the long way around to the punch bowl. Different, different world. You're literally living in a different world. So now let's take this on the grand level. There are billions of people in the world, and they're all talking about all sorts of things every single moment, changing the way you think about everything every single moment, It's literally a new world that's being created that you are inhabiting every single moment. Do you realize that? Literally, it's a new world every single moment. Now, there's physics to that also, but I'm just trying to tell you on a very grounded, like, cognitive level how this is true. Okay, so so we, we can evolve this world, this olam haba, we can make this olam haba, this paradise, essentially, here on earth, a lot through speech, how we talk, whether we encourage other people or not. You know, that's, that's an amazing thing. Then all of a sudden say, you know something? You know, I've been thinking maybe I can't do it, but that person was just giving me this pep talk. I don't know, maybe I can do it. Then all of a sudden you try a little bit harder, you make a phone call or whatever it is, and then an opportunity opens up. How did that open up? Because someone encouraged you. All of a sudden now, it's a new world. You know what? I can actually move into another place. Okay. You know, now I can I feel a little more confident. I'll ask that person out. Whatever it is. You see, it's amazing. Through speech. Through speech. Okay. Now, <clears throat> let's get back to the Ramchal in terms of Olam the world to come. Okay, now this is at the end of our life. Okay? So, so the idea is like this. God has a challenge. He wants to give the ultimate good to his creation. Okay? But if he just gives the ultimate good to his creation, the people can't receive it because they didn't do anything to earn it. You see, if you work for something, you create a vessel for something, and then you can hold it. But if I just throw money at you, and you haven't got any pockets to put it in, how do you receive it? And if you don't even know the concept of work, that, there's, that, that, that this is good, how do I even know that this money is even worth anything? Like This is a very big problem in terms of children who grow up in very wealthy families. 
It's, it, I, I heard this term one time, which I, I, I liked, affluenza, right? <laughs> like, which I'm sure you got it, but just in case you didn't, I'll explain it. There's influenza, which is the flu. It's like a very bad cold. And there's affluence, which is wealth. So you have affluenza. It's like a, it's like a, a form of sickness, but it's born from wealth, right? Because it's not knowing the value of a dollar, so then you don't really know how to prioritize anything, and you don't know how to be grateful for anything, and you don't have a work um, uh, ethic that's developed because you've gotten everything, and you're all completely twisted around and mixed up. It's a very real problem, by the way, and, and please don't be among those people who go, oh, I wish I had that problem. You don't wish you had that problem. You don't, because it's a problem. <laughs> You understand? It sort of like might be sort of like a very novel problem compared to your circumstances right now. But then when you have it, you go, "Oh, this sucks." <laughs> you know, this is also a problem. I, I, I once um, in college, I knew someone who who had a roommate, and and this person told me she said, "My roommate is so competitive with me." I told her this is a true story. I told her I have high blood pressure. I guess she was diagnosed with high blood pressure. And she said, oh, really? Because I have low blood pressure. But you don't want low blood pressure either. That's also a sickness. <laughs> you want normal blood pressure. So it's sort of like you don't want to trade your problems for another set of problems because those are also problems. You want the absence of problems or try at least to move in that direction to the extent that it's possible. Okay. So... So God had this problem, so to speak, or this challenge, which is how to you, and by the way, we're trying to explain the whole meaning for this world right now. So this is just in case you've lost track of what the question was. This is a very giant question that we're answering right now. So, so how could God share the ultimate good, which is what? What is the ultimate good? God is the ultimate good. So how could God share of himself with created beings, if in giving them just free shefa, free blessing, free ultimate infinite light, they would have no concept of what that was or the value of that. Then they wouldn't receive it as good. They would just receive it as, well, this is kind of what it is to exist. You just get ultimate light. Does everyone hear the, the thing? So, so, so God says, you know what? You know what I'm going to do? I am going to create a world, right? I told you we're answering a very big question right now. I'm going to create a world where people are going to have to work. And while they work, they are going to earn this good that I want to give them, that I always wanted to give them that I wanted to give them before I even created the world. But now they're going to be able to receive, you ready? The perfect good in a perfect way. Because now they're going to understand the value of this. And now when they get this light at the end of a lifetime, they're going to be able to receive it and be totally blissed out as opposed to some snotty kid well, of course I've got a Ralph Lauren suit. What else am I supposed to wear? Right? But it's sort of like, wow, you know, like you'll be just, your mind will be blown because you've, you've experienced limitation. You've experienced the finite. 
Now all of a sudden when you experience the infinite, this is like wild. Okay? So that is, that is what this world is. And then that is what the next world is. The next world is essentially the realization of God's initial dream for all of us, which is to share himself, his perfect good with creations. In other words, it's, 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 you have to understand that this world, the whole project of this world, is coming from God's goodness. A very, very important foundation. Because, because you know, I, I just can't make this point more strongly over and over enough, which is that if you want to believe in God like a Jew, if you, if you want, it, you can't just believe in the existence of God. That is not called believing in God from a Jewish standpoint. You must believe that God is also good and that everything that happens is for the good. Even if you can't understand it in the moment, even if it's painful in the moment. So God, from the very beginning, has this beneficent, this very good, generous kind of like plan. And then all of a sudden at the end, and by the way, your soul is eternal. So as challenging as this world is, you know, I always make this point, but just try to hear it. If you take a finite entity, no matter how large it is, and put right next to it the infinite, the finite entity looks very small. Like, almost like nothing. So if you take, we should all live long, 120 years of life in this world, and you compare it to the infinite life of the soul, this world in every version is this. In every version, it's this. So so we get to, we get to go to the most blissed out eternal party forever that, by the way, never gets boring because God in his infinity is constantly like, like there's no, there's no, here, there's no end to God. So let me give you another way of understanding it. We, we, you have um, like something called um, the receding horizon. So what's the receding horizon? So, so if you're standing on a beach, and I'm sure we've all experienced this, standing on the beach, if you look in the distance, you'll see a line where the ocean and the sky meet. Right? That's called the horizon. So you go, oh man, that's so way out. The ocean and the sky are meeting? I want to go to that place. So you jump in the water and you start swimming, and then that line gets a little bit further, and you go, okay, i got to swim faster. So you swim faster, and it gets a little bit further. You go, okay, all right, I, I'm, well, I'm such an idiot. I think I can swim to that moment. I'll take a speedboat. <laughs> you know, so you jump in a speedboat, and the line gets further and further and further. That's called the receding horizon, because basically it's an illusion because of just the way space is laid out for, for, for that line actually to exist, right? But that is very um, reminiscent of, of, of what our life in the world to come is. Because God is infinite. So no matter how much our souls elevate, we never catch the end of God. In other words, it's an infinitely creative experience 
the soul in heaven, the soul plugged into heaven. And what happens is, is that the more mitzvahs that you do in this world, mitzvah, the root of the Hebrew word mitzvah is tzav, which means connection. So the more mitzvahs that you have, the more connections that you have, the more when you're in the next world, your soul is wired to pick up more and more light, which means that the next world experience becomes dynamic in proportion to how many receivers you have, right? Do you understand? So imagine, I'll give you a a very sort of like uh, basic idea. Imagine that every time you do a mitzvah, you create a bucket. And if you arrive in like the next world with, you know, a bunch of buckets, then you receive that much light. But if you arrive in the next world with millions of buckets, (laughs) you're flying. You're flying. Okay, so, so, so this is the whole end game, and 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 what's nice about looking at it in this in this way, is that you realize that that actually what we're talking about right now is going to be the great majority of our experience of being conscious beings. See, this is all predicated on one very important thing. That let me just clarify, and then we can move on to the next question, which is that a lot of people, and again, you see, one of the, part of the greatness of Torah is that it articulates all of these different areas. And that's why it's very important to learn Torah, because even if you're like well-intentioned and you, you have an open heart and you're spiritual, you will not arrive on these articulations on your own. You just won't. But we know these things. So you can think so much further if you just devote yourself to just learning a little bit on a regular basis. So let me, let me tell you what I mean by this. A lot of people think, okay, I believe in a soul. I believe in a next world. I believe that my soul goes to the next world. And that caps out their knowledge. That's most people. That would probably be about 98% people. Okay? And then, and, then, and then basically, well, what happens then? Well, I don't know. I mean, I guess I sort of like dissolve into the great oneness. Right? You ready for this? You remain you in the next world. That's a game changer. You remain you in the next world. And the example that Rabbi Ari Kaplan gives, which is like very good, I think, very clear to me anyway, is that imagine a flash drive, right? So you you put your flash drive into your, your, your computer and you're able to extract files, right? And now you have the essence of your computer in your hand. Right? The essence of your computer is not the laptop. It's, it's the information inside the laptop. Do you understand? The essence of you is not your body. The essence of you is all your stored information and your consciousness, which is what's called your soul. But it includes your consciousness and your self-awareness. That's what leaves you. You remain you forever. You remain you forever. Do, do you hear that's, that's very exciting and maybe a little bit scary. Because if you don't want to spend time with yourself now, 
I mean, I once heard someone say it was really such a heartbreaker. I worked with this guy. Nice guy. Drug addict. Drug addict. And um, he told me, I think he recovered. Um, he told me that he would leave work and he would get into his like Ferrari or something like that. I think he had some real crazy high-end sports car and he was like a very good-looking, rich kind of playboy type guy, right? He'd get into his car at the end of the day and he told me, I heard this with my own ears, he said, my first thought was, how fast can I get away from myself? Can you imagine? So, so the thing is, is that we, we remain us, which is super cool, because you don't just disappear at the end of this lifetime, you remain you. So all this work that you're doing, you get to keep it, so that's really, really good. By the way, I heard Rebetzin Heller say one time, how do you recognize another person in the next world if they don't have bodies? So she said, you have on your soul imprinted all the mitzvahs that you ever did. So can you imagine I go up after 120 and I'm floating with these neshamas or what, you know, these souls, however you, however you imagine it, and I see one soul that says, I changed David Sachs's diapers for, I'm like, mom, you know, <laughs> so it's like, so, so you remain you, right, but part of the job of this world is you got to make a you that you're really proud of, you know, and um, I think that it's a very big accomplishment in life to like yourself. I don't, I don't think that we can um, take for granted that, that I, I, I'd be really curious if, 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 if what percent of the people in the world like themselves. I'd be very, very intrigued to know what the answer to that is. I bet it's lower than what you would think. You know? It's an accomplishment to like yourself. And I think it's worth asking yourself, what can I do to like myself more? Because if ultimately you're going to be with you, I mean, you'll be in this exalted, godly environment and everything like that, but the you-ness is going to be a component, right? What, what, what can you do, what can I do to make myself like myself more? And you know what I think one, one, one thing that I know for me, this is you know, something I'm always trying to work on and everything like that, is if I, if I do what I say I'm going to do, like keeping your own word is like a, is a very is a is a very big thing, and I think I heard this from Reb Shlomo in the name of the Radomsker Rebbe. This is like one of those like very searing Torahs. He said that you know why people don't believe in God because they don't keep their own words, which means they don't even believe in themselves. So how can they believe in God if they don't even believe in themselves? That's heavy. That's heavy. That's heavy. So, um, and I'll tell you something just on a personal level, which was so meaningful to me. Um, and I didn't, you know, this kind of all kind of like unwound over a series of decades. But when I was growing up, my dad was sort of almost fanatical about one, one particular thing. He would say to me all of the time, dozens of times growing up, have I ever made you a promise I didn't keep? Have I ever made you a promise that I didn't keep? 
he was really, he was like, I don't know what it was, but that was huge in his brain, huge. And then as I, you know, grew up, and I, and I didn't grow up in a quote-unquote religious home, or religiously observant home anyway, um, when, I, when, I, when I started learning Torah and things like this, you know, when I was a little older, and I was like, okay, yeah, it says this, absolutely, it says that, absolutely, it says this, absolutely. And then at one point, I asked myself, why do I believe all of this stuff? <laughs> You know? And I thought to myself, you know what? My father kept his word. How could it be that God's not going to keep his word? So, so you know, it's just there's that real relationship. You know, and again, don't forget, words and creation are very, very, very tightly correlated. Okay. Uh, let's take another question. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, um, so real fast, I, I was thinking of what you were saying about your mitzvahs and when you yeah. are in the next life, you plug in and you can see all these mitzvahs. Yeah. But I think that there's a, a more instantaneous result of a mitzvah here on earth because yeah. I feel like, I feel for me, I think because you like analogies, the analogy I was thinking of was when we're on our cell phones or we're on our laptop computers and we're plugging into the internet, we're doing something good and we immediately connect to this to God and all the different souls that are yeah. here on earth, right? Yeah. And so when you do something good, you automatically feel good as a result of this. Yes. Like you have this instantaneous thing. Yes. Um, which leads me to something I've been thinking about a lot. And I was with one friend who suffers from affluenza and and they were all doing cocaine. And I don't do that, but I was just sitting there and I was just chilling with them while they were doing this. And I remember seeing their souls kind of change. Right, and it was it, you could see it in their eyes and their aura that was around them. It, it was this darkness, and I was thinking about how in life we all have these beautiful souls, and that we have this void in them that we're supposed to connect to other people and to, to God or Hashem. And I was thinking about how the lies that society has to to fill this void with things that are empty. And then I was thinking about how does one protect their own soul and how do we plug in because we can come here we can listen to your words and we hear the words of other people and we connect and we feel very good and we're like wow this is great we're all plugging in to Hashem together this is amazing but then there's a lot of things in this world that tells you that's going to make you happy and fill this void and it totally destroys you and so the things I've been thinking about lately are how do we plug into that first of all and I think it really is by doing good things I remember when we you know, Abraham gave himself the circumcision and God was with him. He immediately went out and helped someone else. And he felt good because he was helping the travelers and he felt this enlightenment. And so I was thinking, it's like, well, one, we do mitzvahs for other people and we feel this, this enlightenment. But another thing I've been thinking about is how do we protect ourselves and our souls from this darkness? You know, and not something so big as, you know, as of like doing a drug, because that's very obvious to me. But also, when it comes to the end of the day, making sure that we contribute with our words and, and our deeds and our work, that we're contributing to something that brings people closer to Hashem and helps people plug into this, while also trying to break barriers and do things that are, that are tough so we can help other people get to that place. Okay, so, okay, so you touch on a bunch of things. I'll uh, just try to address them as best I can. So, first of all, in terms of taking drugs, um, any, any type of abuse. So, so why do we do that? 
And, and I think that the reason is, is because all of us have a real need for transcendence. And it's, it's built within us. We understand intuitively that there's something larger out there. And, and, that, and we want to connect with that. Um, but a lot of people don't know how to connect with that or how to connect with that in a, in, in a way that's the most um, holistic and, 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 and positive way to do it. And the world offers so many shortcuts to do it. And, and drugs are one of those things because drugs really do take a person out of themselves. They really do. So they really do offer transcendence. But that's actually coming, it's actually coming from a positive place, but it's, it's misdirected. It's misdirected. So where do the roots of that come, come from? And, you know, you touched on it, um, an example that I, I think about a lot. And actually, I heard this said in the name of one of the great Hasidic masters. And then t- someone told me later on, this thought I'm about to tell you. No, no, this was said by a, um, a biker in drug rehab. <laughs> and I think actually it might even be a better teaching from coming from that place, okay? But it's, for me, this is like a very central thought in terms of my own spiritual uh, growth, which is the following, that every single person is created with a God-shaped hole inside them. Every single person is created with a God-shaped hole inside of them. And, you know, the, the thing is, is that if you've ever done like a jigsaw puzzle and you're working on like a patch of it and there's only one piece missing, and then you take... You take another piece, and only the right piece fits into that, into that space, right? So you can't jam in the wrong piece, right? So, so, so most people feel in their life that there's something missing. And, and there is something missing, because God created us with this God-shaped hole. So the way I would visualize it is if you think of a USB port, right? So you've got like this hole built into you that's part of your structure. It's not a mistake. God didn't just forget to fill in that hole. He created that hole like a USB port. But it's there so that you can plug in to something that's beyond you so that you can achieve transcendence. Now, here's the problem. If a person isn't taught that, if a person doesn't have that information, then what they do is they sense this thing that's missing and they try to fill it with all sorts of things, with food, with sex, with business, with money, with shopping, with, with all sorts of things, drugs certainly, right? But nothing fills that hole because it's a God-shaped hole. Only God can fill that. So God created us with us by design, by design, with a sense of longing for him. And this ties in with a lot of sort of the mechanics of creation, of the dynamism of creation, because what drives the world, what drives accomplishment, what drives transformation? Desire. Desire is the root of everything, okay? Then it's a question of how do we channel our desire? Now, I'll tell you a way out thought. I just learned this this week from, it's in Takana Sashavan by Rav Coin. He says, do you know how desire gets implanted in you in the begin, to begin with? You ready for this? 
Hold on to your hats. The desire that your parents had when they conceived you. Isn't that heavy? It's like a wild thought. That desire created desire within you. Okay, now how you use that desire, but you need desire. You need desire to accomplish anything. You even need desire, again, this is Reb Tzadik HaKoyin speaking, you even need desire in order to have a place to exercise free choice. In other words, we say that the entire world was created for the purpose of free choice. Remember what we were talking about before, that God wants to give you good, but you have to be able to appreciate that it's good, which means you have to work for the good. So you have to create a vessel for the good. Well, how do you create a vessel to hold God's light? How do you do it? By making a decision, by making a choice, by exercising free will. So you see, the entire world is built on the foundation of the existence of free will. Now let's go even deeper. You can't have free will unless you have desire. And I'll give you an example of how that works. Imagine I say to you, here's a kosher sandwich, right? Maybe it's just a bite of brisket. It's like a slider, right? (laughs) These are popular today. And then here's like a big plate of like fantastic ham, okay? Sort of like, okay, well, which one do you pick? Well, the truth is I'm not hungry. Okay, okay. Don't eat anything for the next 10 hours. And then we bring it out again, hot and fresh. Which one do you pick? Ah, Honestly, I'm really not hungry at all. All right, don't eat for the next two days. (laughs) Then we're going to give you this choice. Which do you pick? I'm not hungry. Do, Do you see that without desire, there is no chance to exercise free choice? Desire is at the root of everything. And then we got desire from our parents' desire when we were created. So it's, it's like, this is an example, by the way, if you want to know why people's eyes widen when, when you mention Reb Tzadik HaKon, because he just goes deeper, 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 deeper. <laughs> just, you know. So how do we protect ourselves? Okay, so now we've established that the reason why people take drugs or a lot of drugs or things like that is because they actually probably are very spiritual people and they have a great need for transcendence which is very real. But they don't know that only God fills the God-shaped hole. So how do we, how do we guard ourselves? So the way, I'll just suggest this from, I learned this from Reb Shlomo in the name of the Ishbitzer Rebbe. He says, basically, the greatest prayer a person can ask, right? Like, like, the, like a really high level. You want to be on a high level? Like a really high level? Not a kidding around high level? To be... To be at a place where you're asking God, what do you want from me this moment? And to be able to be free enough to be able to move in whatever direction is required to do what you understand to be the answer to that, using, of course, the Torah as a framework. What do you want from me this moment? Right, And then you'll, if you have an open eye and everything like that, and an open heart, you'll see an opportunity in front of you. 
And if you're a little bit, you know, knowledgeable about the different pathways, let's call them the mitzvahs, but they're, each mitzvah is a divine pathway. If you're knowledgeable about the pathways, you'll know which opportunity is open for you and what you can do. Even if it's just smiling. Even if it's just, even maybe you're alone. You know, there's something called the six constant mitzvahs. There's six things to think about all the time. So even if you're alone on a desert island, you can be doing mitzvahs. Okay? So I don't know if I'll be able to name all six, but the belief in God, to believe in God. Um, that's right. You know something? It's at the back of the sitter. Thank you. You know, uh, the, the sitter, the, the, the prayer book, um, is a real treasure chest. And there's sort of like these like hidden parts in between like the normal regular service, morning, evening, night, where they've got, like, they throw in, like, things like special blessings to make. Like, do you know there's a blessing to make if you see a king? You can actually make a blessing over a king or a, or a rainbow or a dwarf. If you see a dwarf, you can make a, a blessing. If you see a beautiful woman, you can make a blessing. Although they discourage that because they don't want people hanging out, you know, <laughs> in various places. But... There's all sorts of amazing blessings. In fact, we're in the month of Nisan right now. There's an opportunity right now to make a blessing on fruit-bearing trees. So if you see a tree, a fruit tree that has a flower on it, actually you need to see two trees. So ideally two next to each other. Like right now, all around the neighborhood, they've got lemon trees, right? And, and if you see, see that, you can make a, a blessing on it. It's actually a very, very beautiful blessing. Um, do you know where I can find a, a piece here? A pico or... Yeah, I, I do. I, I'll tell you in a bit. So, um, let's see. I'm, I'm looking at a... I'm looking at all these things. I don't know if I... I don't know if I... I don't know if I see it here. Is it the other David? Yeah, I'm looking at that. I'm looking at it. You've got the... up oh, here... Well, here's the six remembrances. That's different from the six constant mitzvahs. Okay. But to believe in God... That, that's one. Not to, um, not to follow after your eyes and heart. That's, 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 that's a big one. To remember not to follow after your eyes and heart. And, and one of my favorite things about that is, you know, normally say the eyes see and the heart desires. Right? There's this sort of like... But actually, if you look at the way... The commandment is written in the Torah itself. It says, don't follow after your heart and your eyes. So, again, it's a little bit strange. We normally say the eye sees and the heart desires. But the way it's actually written is, don't follow after your heart, which is written first, and your eyes. So based on that, and to me this is one of the deepest things I ever heard. If the heart doesn't desire the eye doesn't see. Right? So I, I once thought, you know, sometimes like, you know, you're, 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 you'll go to a party and you'll come home and your wife will ask you, oh, who is there? And then you'll say, and then she'll say, oh, she was there. What was she wearing? Don't answer the question. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Because if the heart doesn't desire, the eye doesn't see. <laughs> Okay, so 
So anyway, um, but it's worth looking up. I'm sorry that I, I, I don't have them all. I, I have a few more ideas, but I don't want to say anything incorrect. But, but there's, just to um, repeat, and then we'll take another question, just to, just to repeat that last point, the way to guard yourself is to try to work on yourself to the point where you can actually be in a place where you're asking yourself, what does God want from me at this moment? And then you'll see opportunities to do good. And that in itself will be um, a way of avoiding that. Yeah. Yeah. As the last question, as this gentleman mentioned there, he pronounced such a way, you do miss when you feel good. To my vision, the 613 are made for us not to feel good. Because to my vision, if you feel good, you just feed your ego. What do you think about it? Yeah. So, so this is very subtle, what you're saying. On the one hand, if you do good, ideally speaking, you should feel good. But on the other hand, spirituality can become a narcissistic endeavor where, where my doing good is really a form, not of godly service, but of self-service. Yeah. Right? Like I mentioned to you the other day, something that just, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a heartbreaker, which is Reb Shlomo said about people who throw rocks at people who drive cars on Shabbos. Why are they throwing the rocks at the cars? Because why should you be able to drive on Shabbos when I can't? Like that's, that's, a, heart, that's a heartbreaker. That's a heartbreaker. In other words... You know, sometimes you, you, you meet teachers who are telling you to do this, that, because I have to do it, so you have to do it. But it's not coming from a place like, you know, there's a God in this world, and he created the whole world, and he, he has a plan, and we're created to be partners with him in terms of achieving this plan, and that's the ultimate, like, wow, glory of a human being. Like, like imagine, like, you know, anyone who had the, the, the number two job at Apple, who was... You know, you know what? Tim Cook doesn't make a decision without talking to me first. That's pretty cool. But you're working for Tim Cook. No, I don't think you heard what I said. Tim Cook doesn't... Apple, the whole brand, he doesn't make a decision without talking to me first. So, so but you're an employee. So you see, there's nothing wrong with being an employee. <laughs> now imagine... You're the employee, you're the servant, the best friend, the child, the firstborn child of the master of the universe. There's shame in that? How could there be shame in that? There's something wrong with the way we're thinking if, if we think that there's shame in that. This is like the greatest thing in the entire world. So, so the thing is we have to be what's called in Hebrew we say l'shem shemayim. We have to make sure that we do our actions for the sake of heaven, which means that it's not ultimately a, a, um, an ego trip that's sort of wrapped up in, you know, white robes and, you know, shmura matzah, you know what I mean? Like, it's really like something that we're going outside of ourselves to connect to something greater. And, and I'll tell you something, the Kutzka Rebbe says something like, again, it's so deep. So L'shem Shemayim, let's translate that as, 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 as very sincere. Sincere, right? Not self-serving, sincere. Okay? Listen to this. He says, you have to make sure, you ready? 
that all of your l'shem shemayims, all of your for the sake of heavens, are l'shem shemayim, actually for the sake of heaven. Because <laughs> now I get to the place, you see, this is the Yetzirah. The Yetzirah never ends, it's, it's endless. The, the temptation to go off, off, and just sort of like, uh, steer into a wall, never ends to our last breath. Okay? So I can get to myself to a place where I'm like, I'm just really doing it for the sake of God. But now that I'm doing it for the sake of God, oh, I am really so great, aren't I? I'm so great. Look how I do everything for the sake of God. Now all of a sudden, now all of a sudden my L'Shem Shemayims are no longer L'Shem Shemayim. All my L'Shem Shemayims are just to exalt my own greatness at beings having achieved such sincerity. Look at me. It never ends. You know, they, 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 they talk about, um, I, I think it was Yonasan ben Zakkai, who was the, the, the leader of the Jewish people at the time of the destruction of the Second Temple. And I'm not going to get this right, but basically he was on his deathbed and they asked him a question. And they, they, I forgot what the question was, honestly. I think they asked him, what do you see before you? And I think he said two roads, but I'm not sure. We've got to check that. Anyway, the point was that people, great people on their deathbed, when they're surrounded by their students, have been careful not to say, like if, they, if you can leave the world, having said Shema as the last thing that you've said, like the, going, duh, the, pronouncing the Dalit of, of the Echad of Shema, that's considered a very exalted way to leave this world, right? There have been Sadiqim who have been surrounded by their students and they've said it so quietly because they didn't want to show off at their last moment. Look what a great Sadiq I am. I'm leaving the world on the Dalit of Shema. Can you imagine? That's literally your last breath. Literally your last breath. They're being careful not to show off. So a person has to keep themselves in check. They have to be monitoring themselves. And, and this monitoring yourself has to be a healthy, excited, loving monitoring yourself. A lot of people monitor themselves like an elementary school, you know, teacher with a stick. This is how they monitor themselves. Like, I, I had that thought, and then they whap themselves on their brain. This is not how to monitor yourself. It, it has to be, you know, like, you know, like, you know, when you, when you clean a baby, when you clean a baby, you do it so gently, right? You don't take sandpaper. You know what? What is that? It's like dried jelly. Hey, get the sander out. <laughs> She's a baby. No, no. No, look, we got to teach him young. Who is she to get jelly on her face? <laughs> you take a wet rag, you softly, softly. So you monitor yourself, but softly, softly. And, and, and what the Kutzka Rebbe says is, 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 is basically, this is really the path of Kutzk. Before you do something, and again, this can't be done in an, in an erotic, angry way, in an, in an obsessive, compulsive way. You can't do it in that way. It's got to be done in a loving way with yourself. You ask yourself, this thing that I'm going to say, 
Why am I saying it? This thing that I'm about to do, why am I doing it? And then you can be on top of what your true intentions are on an ongoing basis. And that's a self-correcting way to make sure that your avoda, that your heavenly service, is really for God and not just for your own ego. And if it really is for God, bless you, if it really is for God, then you have to feel good. You have to feel good about it. But that's, that's, that's the good that he wants you to feel. Okay, yeah. Ne- next question, yeah. Sometimes the shulas can be a very uh, necessary thing. Let's say in a, it can be even a, can save you, your life if you if you had at that moment the shulas, you know, or many things uh, important things that the shulas could help you really big time. And I'm saying maybe that uh, uh, Rab Nachman was thinking about that when he said it was shulas, or somebody very poor that he couldn't walk without the shoelaces. But now in this uh, age, what is a shoelace? I mean, we can change uh, shoes instead of buying the shoelace. So I'm thinking, uh, and especially now in this uh, time when, uh, now you said that uh, we're living in a finite, finite hours, they're passing so fast on us, and now that you said that in comparison to infinity, it's really nothing. So I'm feeling now it's starting to go faster. So I'm asking you, what is really Rab Nachman meant? Was it meant in this sense that it's really important? Or really losing a prayer on shoelace when you really have something better, more important in class? Okay, so, so I think the way I would answer this is I would say, I would say, first of all, everything is important. That if it's important to you, it's important to God. That's, that's how I would start. I would start that way. Let me ask you something. Why are there beautiful people in the world? Like physically beautiful people. Why, why is that necessary? Why is that necessary? Honestly. Everyone can look the same. Or you need, you know, let's say you got eyes, you got ears, you got mouth, you got legs and arms. What else do you need? You need something extra on top of that? So you see, the, the, actually, if you actually look at the world, the entire world is filled with extras. The entire world is filled with extras. So, so you know, it says, um, it says in the Tehillim, in the Psalms, King David says, taste and see that God is good. So you can actually experience the goodness of God through the sense of taste and through sight. So let me give you an example, right? The entire world could basically be exactly the same it is right now in terms of God's ultimate plan in black and white, right? There doesn't have to actually be any color in this world at all. And yet, look at how much color there is. You know, I, I, I don't know if I shared with you, I, I, when I was on this safari in South Africa a few weeks ago, I saw a bird, which a, a yellow, that was shocking, it was like, it was like, take the best yellow that Van Gogh ever put on the canvas and like, next level yellow. Next level. 
And it's like, why did God have to make a bird that yellow? And how many people were even going to see it? (laughs) But there it is. Why did God do that? Well, let's go back to what King David says. Taste and see that God is good. Right? How about, how about tastes? I would argue, like, very strongly, that there is no need for kumquats in this world. <laughs> Why are there kumquats? God, I, you can't tell me that God couldn't have made this exact world without kumquats. But God's like, you know what? Someone's going to like kumquats. <laughs> and I have the idea for them. And I'm doing it. <laughs> I am doing it. But there you see from the infinite, the, 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 the outrageous, literally outrageous amount of creativity in the world, you see an expression of God's goodness. You know something? I, I was looking this up for something I was researching. It was, this was in the LA Times. Two years ago, maybe it was three years ago. You ready for this? 18,000. You can't even believe that this is true. I keep on having to ask myself, is this true? I've checked it and double-checked it. 18,000 new species were discovered two years ago. (laughs) Now, I don't know how they're defining species, but 18,000 is a lot for two years ago, right? So it doesn't stop. So now, what does this have to do with shoelaces? So, So... Whatever it is that we need, whatever it is that we want, there is a moment. It's not about the physical object itself. It's about your relationship with God. Do you understand? That's what's at play here. Not the value of a shoelace. What's at play here is something deeper. You have a need. And where are you going with your need? How close is your relationship that you go to God with every single need because you understand that he's the source of absolutely everything. So it's not about it's not about those things. It's about that relationship that you're creating with God. That 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 that's what it's about. And that's why there is nothing literally nothing too small if you feel a need for it for it an oppor- for it to be an opportunity for you to grow your relationship and your connection. Hey, David. Sorry? Yeah. yeah, I was going to ask you, you know, you're making that about when you're saying about, like, fellow little gold class, what's about asking other shoelaces. Um, there's, a, there's a teaching in the mission, in the Perkyo Post, I mean, in the Perkyo Post, about saying that, that God's will, your will, and it's always, he'll make your will his. Yeah. Should we, should we, when we make our request, should we not, should not be the number one request? We should make up a show that this will be our, be our own rock song as well? Yeah, that's, and, and that's, that's, that's an incredible level to be at when you, you're making your will God's will. And, and I'll tell you something, you know, that's, it, it, it's, and, then, and then God will make his will your will. That's to be in harmony with the divine in terms of your desire, that's a really super, then you're rolling. You're rolling at that moment, right. you know? You're, you're really supercharged at that moment. But let me just tell you something, because it's, it's, it, it, that you're answering a question that the Zohar explains to solve the riddle of Noah. Because everyone, like the, the Torah says, 
Noach was one of the most righteous people around. Right. And there's even an opinion that if he lived in the same generation as Avraham, that Avraham wouldn't be able to compare to Noach. Okay, so if that's the case, how could it be that God says, we're going to destroy the world, and Noach goes, okay. Like, everyone wants to know, why didn't Noach pray to God not to do it? If he's righteous, how could it be? So the Zohar says, I heard this from Rib Shlomo, that the concept of prayer hadn't been revealed into the world yet. A very interesting idea that, that um, normally speaking, we want to make our will God's will. So if you think about it, Noach really was the perfect tzaddik. God says, I want to destroy the world. And Noach's like, that's your will? Let's do it. Right? But that's because the idea that sometimes, now this is where life gets much more tricky and complicated. (laughs) Sometimes God puts something in the world in order for you to say no to it. You see, like God will put injustice in the world in order for you to say no to it. See, now that's, and it's not obvious always when it happens. Like we say, why couldn't Noah be more like Moshe? After the sin of the golden calf, God says, I'm going to destroy the Jewish people and start over with you. That sounds exactly like Noah. In fact, Kabbalistically, we say that Noah was reincarnated as Moshe to fix this moment. And what is, what is, as soon as God says to Moshe, what I'm telling you right now is from the Gemara, this is from the Talmud, okay? As soon as God says to Moshe, I'm going to destroy the Jewish people and start over with you, What does Moshe say? Nothing. What does God say? Now stop trying to stop me. And Moshe says, this is the Gomorrah. Moshe says, wait a second, I wasn't trying to stop you. Oh, I'm supposed to try to stop you. (laughs) So then Moshe goes, no, God, don't do that. But it wasn't even obvious. You know, normally we say, we say, well, yeah, Noah didn't know anything. Moshe, Moshe, that's our model. But Moshe didn't know. Because Moshe is all about making his will God's will. And if God says, okay, we're going to start again. So Moshe needed a little help from God, a little push in that direction, says the Gomorrah, in order to know to do that. But we have to see, we have to be able to look around the world And we have to make our will his will, but we have to also understand that sometimes his will is to look around and say, that thing shouldn't exist. And then work toward removing that. Hatred, injustice, things like this. Yeah, so, so, you know, Pesach is just so giant. Uh, there was a, uh, I would say, um, the, Reb Shlomo told this story, I forgot which Rebbe it was, but I think he lived in Poland, and um, he was going on a trip, and it was in the middle of summer, so it was a hot summer, and he took a fur coat. And his Hasidim were like, why are you taking a fur coat? Like, it's hot, it's summer. And he says, 
Just because it's hot today, who says it's going to be hot tomorrow? <laughs> to me, it's like we're a couple of weeks before Pesach right now. We can talk about the Seder, but I think, to me, the Seder is the, the finishing touch. Like, if you want to have a really good Seder, like the Seder's right now. We're in this month called, we just entered this month called Chodesh Nisan. When Ari Epstein shared this with me. I thought it was such a beautiful idea. You have two main units of time, okay? One is month, and the other is year. So let's look in the Hebrew, because the Hebrew is divine, okay? Whatever the Hebrew is saying, it's going to open your eyes to something much greater. Month is Chodesh. That's how you say month in Hebrew, Chodesh. Do you know what Chodesh is the same word as? Chadash, which means new. Year is Shana. Shana is the same word as change. Then interesting that the two key words for time are renewal and change. Renewal and change. And that's this idea of understanding. And that's what this is, the idea of the Seder happening in the month of Nisan. Nisan has the word Nis in it, which means it's the month of miracles. Which means to really work on seeing this world and your life and everything around you as this very fluid entity that's very dynamic and is subject to renewal and change at every single moment. That the Geula, that the redemption can actually happen. Now, you know, people ask me something, and I, I try very hard not to turn this into a shtick or into like a lecture, you know what I mean? Which is hard for me to do, to keep this fresh, but I'm committed to keeping this fresh the best way I can, which is when people ask me, what, you know, where are you going for Pesach? Or what are you doing for Pesach? Are you going like the last 10 years I've gone to be with family members up in the Catskills uh, in New York for Pesach? They say, are you going there? And I... I want to keep very central the thought that we could all be as a people in Jerusalem with the Beis HaMikdash, bringing this very, one of the most central mitzvahs of the 613 is what's called the Korban Pesach, the Passover offering. Huge, huge mitzvah. This was the membership dues of the Jewish people. This was, if you didn't bring the Korban Pesach, you were spiritually cut off. It's a major, major mitzvah, foundational mitzvah. We don't have it right now. But we will have it again. And bless you. And so the idea that, that why not this Pesach? Why not this Pesach? Why not? Why, why not? So how can, how can anyone say, or let me rephrase that. How can I say that I'm going to be in the Catskills? Like there's a little, to me, I feel a little bit of death. And I, I mean that, I'm using that word very, very carefully. I feel a little bit of death saying, I'm going to be in the Catskills this, this Passover. Because how do I know? And isn't that just upending this whole level of consciousness that we're talking about maintaining and cleaving to at all times? So I don't give a long speech. Oh, we could be together. So, so, so here's my shorthand right now. And again, I have to keep on changing it. Otherwise, it's going to get old. Which is, people say, are you going to the Catskills? And I'll say, that's plan B. 
It's my way of saying, or I'll say, or, you know, right now, that's, that's on the schedule. It's little careful ways of phrasing it where I'm, where I'm keeping very clear that this, this could actually happen, right? So I had a thought. By the way, you know, we don't say, technically speaking, and this is halacha right now, we don't say tachanun, um, which is kind of this, kind of like, whatever, sad, maybe it's got a little din in it, a little judgment in it. So the whole month of Nisan, we don't say tachanun. Because halakhically, Nisan has the status of being a holiday. The entire month is like a holiday, which is like very interesting because time is getting like really wiggy right now. You know, it's like becoming much more open-ended and unstable. Okay, so, so I'll, I'll give you a way of visualizing this. Um, this is, was new to me, but I, I was kind of like reflecting on this, which is... Like, we just went from the last month to the first month. Now remember, time is like a spiral, okay? And it's like an upward-going spiral. Each new circle is ever wider than the last. And it's like... And then we get to the end of Adar. And then it kind of ends. <laughs> Like imagine like a funnel, like a big or like a big pipe with a hole. It's like, and then it just kind of ends. <laughs> because it, once you get into Misan, it could be anything, right? And that's where, that's the space that we're living in right now. So they're Hasidim, who, you know, they wear their strimal. If you notice, they just wear their strimal on a holiday or on Shabbos. But there are Hasidim who wear their strimal all Nisan, because the whole month is a holiday. So, so I would say, to me, the best way to prepare for the Seder is to get into that place of really understanding just how, like, just how time itself is like really loose all the little particles forming it, or whatever the physics of it is. It's like really loose right now. And, um, and that's exciting. That's exciting. Um, and then in terms of the Seder itself, um, well, one thing I would say is, and I learned this from Rabbi Shlomo, it sort of surprised me at the time, but I, I, I get it much better right now. I had a Seder with him one time in Florida, and he sort of like whispered to me before the start of the Seder, he said, we're going to make it really fast because this is for the kids. So you might think, okay, wow, I'm here I am with like, you know, like one of the masters of Torah in the world right now. We're going to be up till three in the morning learning the most amazing things. No. <laughs> That's why you came to this Seder, you're at the wrong place. It's for the kids. Make it for the kids, and 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 uh, let them let them be filled with questions. Rabbi Freeman said yesterday so so well. If you really want to monitor the development of your child, right, in terms of like their cognitive abilities, you know, like their smarts, so to speak, like how do you know how well your child is doing, right? So he said, if they have really good answers, 
that doesn't really tell you anything. But if they have really good questions, that means they're taking the information that they have and they're generating something new, as opposed to just regurgitating information, which doesn't really give you a window into their soul at all. But if they're asking questions, then they're being proactive, like energy is sort of like, so to speak, coming out of them, right? So the whole Seder, the whole Pesach Seder is all about getting, trying to spark curiosity within them, right? Why are we doing this? Why are we doing that? You know, and, and, and but then, but then to ask questions like, I know that I, I think damaged my children, <laughs> unfortunately, uh, by asking them lots of really hard questions all the time when they were children. <laughs> I did that from uh, trying my best, but it, it didn't work. It backfired. I, I just don't learn from my mistakes. Yes. You know, you know it, 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 um, it, it, it put them on the spot, which is not what I was trying to do. And it made them feel very tense and pressured, like they had to come up with a good answer or something original, which which I felt they could do because I had such confidence in, in them. It was coming from a very wonderful place and I wanted to learn from them and participate in like great conversations. But young children aren't capable for the most part of having those things. They, you don't, their brains develop over time. People's brains are developing until you're like 18, maybe even older. That's why, 25, 25, 25. 25. so 25. So there's certain things that you literally, even if you've got a really high IQ, you could be really genuinely smart. And you simply can't answer these questions until you're older because your brain isn't fully developed yet. It's so, so you have to figure out the right way to spark curiosity without putting them on the spot by making them feel good. And then if they ask a question, like rewarding them somehow, because kids understand rewards. They really, they get that. And kids, you know what kids really understand? And I'm telling you this now from the Slonimer Rebbe in a book that he wrote about education. Kids understand enthusiasm. Like if you're enthusiastic, the kid says, oh, that must be important because why is he getting excited? Or why is she getting excited? It must be because this is important. And even if they didn't get any information or any details about it, they just found out, ah, matzah is important. Ah, Passover is important. Ah, the Seder table is important. Can you tell me something about the Seder table? No. But if they could tell you afterwards, I only know one thing. It's important. Okay, you got everything. A plus. You got that it's important? That's all that matters because all the other stuff is just details. And the communication that something is important comes through enthusiasm. That's the Slonim Rebbe, by the way. Slonim Rebbe says that. Um, okay, so, so what, what I've done since the, the Seder itself can sometimes, depending on the table, sometimes it's very sort of like, you know, we're reading paragraphs, we're reading paragraphs. Why are you asking a question? <laughs> Get out of the way. But I thought this was about questions. We're reading paragraphs, we're reading paragraphs. Like Sometimes it's not, there are many satyrs that are not conducive for conversations, right? So what I sort of hit on a few years ago was, well, people, and then people get tired, and then it's all, it's a whole thing, you know, you all know. 
So what I've done, and, and this has actually worked pretty well, was that before, while we're waiting, because it takes forever to set the table, you know, in, in a lot of places. So while the kids are sort of gathered and, you know, all the final cooking is being done and I get them together on the couch and I say, okay, I'm going to give you a dollar for every question you can ask. <laughs> right? I give it to them after the Seder. So, and then they're like, and then they bring all of their questions and then they, and they're, they're not tired yet and everything like that. And then they're going to get, ask a lot of questions and then you get excited with every single question that they ask, right? And, and they don't have to know the answer to it. You don't have to know the answer to it. If you can ask any question you get, you get, you get a dollar. So, um, and then you can, if there's a better prize than a dollar, you can figure that out, you know, Wh- whatever it is. But, but for each question, and then they, get, uh, then they get charged by how you're responding. And, and, and then that's the thing, right? Um, so, so, yeah. Guys, we'll, we'll wrap it up. Oh, I guess we went a little long. I'm sorry about that. Um, <laughs> So, uh, I wasn't looking at the clock, I apologize. I hope I didn't hold you hostage here. Um, so, it, guys, it never ends. That's, that's the good news. The good news is this endeavor that we're all involved in never, ever, 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 ever ends. Okay, and it gets better. It just gets better and cooler and, and God never ends. And Okay, so let's just love each other. Okay. Okay. <laughs>